In his book, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten, Robert Lee Fulgham asserts that through, through a series of short essays that the world would be a much better place for all living things if every adult adhered to the basic values of the U.S. kindergarten style of education. Not without its critics, the book, now more than 35 years old, continues to be republished and printed in languages across the globe. Here are just a few of the things that Mr. Fulgham believes would help us all. <laughs> I, I confess, I, I rolled my eyes at a few of these. Share everything. <laughs> Play fair. Don't hit people. <laughs> Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. That, that, that is on repeat in my house, y'all, like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Now that'll preach all by itself. <laughs> Wash your hands before you eat. <laughs> now, now, 2020 has taught us a few lessons about washing hands, and if you ain't learned them, we need to send you back there with Miss Angie and the kids to get a lesson. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. And my personal favorite, take a nap every afternoon. <laughs> Don't worry, the newborn's not letting that happen, though. <laughs> though I haven't read much more than the opening essay, I must admit that the notion of living by the basic rules of kindergarten is in intriguing at best, even if a bit unrealistic in the world in which we inhabit. I really admit that this may be the, the, the cynical Eeyore living within me, but I'm pretty certain that if any of us tried to adhere to this list for even one day, that afternoon nap would be the long one, and your loved ones would be hitting up the benevolence fund trying to get some of that stuff that you shared with others that they ain't say sorry for taking. <laughs> but it wasn't always this way. <laughs> a long time ago in a garden far, far away, Everything was perfect. A prince and a princess lived in harmony with all creation. Till a near-do-well showed up on some garbage. <laughs> then some bad choices were made, followed by a literal cover-up. The protagonists were exposed, and refusing to take responsibility for their part in it, they were banished for their crimes. And fam, now you and I can't have nice things. <laughs> Spoiler alert, till Elohim comes back and makes this thing new. But the point that I'm getting at here is that this idea that Mr. Fulgram talks about, that everything, if we went back to the basics, back to the basics, back to the basics, and oftentimes that's how we treat the new year, right? This arbitrary point in a calendar that somebody established for us thousands of years ago, we go, this is the year that I'm going to do X. Insert whatever it is into that that you do. And usually if you're like me, it's the second, and you're waking up late trying to get PowerPoint slides to somebody that you should have sent two days ago. <laughs> but I tried. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. But let's examine this a little bit deeper. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 3. Well, Genesis 3 tells us the story of the fall of human beings. But let's start with 1 through 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the, fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we need to dig in a bit here. <laughs> but I want to begin by offering my personal critique on Mr. Fulgram's best-selling book, of which I have precisely zero. <laughs> While his full list includes making time to play daily, I think he's missing the single greatest game from all of kindergarten. Now, I know what's going on in your mind as you try to catch me on this. Some of y'all are thinking tag. Some are thinking freeze tag. Some of y'all are thinking about hide and go seek, and others duck, duck, goose. And some of y'all was real slick and got to play some Red Rover when you were in kindergarten. And I know quite a few of y'all was telling the kids about how back in your day, you used to kill some red light, green light while you was watching Squid Game this past year. But I'm gonna assert that the very best game that I ever learned in kindergarten was the telephone game. Y'all remember that one, right? It basically starts with the teacher giving a message to the first person in the line, right? And then that person would give the message to the second person. And then the second person would give that message to the third person. And the third person, the fourth, and so on and so on down the line. And then after it had gotten through, the teacher would have the first person come and deliver the message that was given to them. And then the last person would come up and 99.9% .9 of the time, 99.99999% of the time, that message on the end was nowhere near the message that the teacher had given to the first person. But fam, that's where the fun kicked off because in my classes, it would erupt in chaos as we argued about who butchered what message worst of all, right? Like it was your fault. No, nah, no, nah, that's not what she said, that's what he said. And that was the fun of it. So much fun, in fact, that I think that we didn't even realize that we were learning a valuable lesson that could carry over into our entire lives about the fragile nature of human communication. This is why the last time that I was here and had this privilege, I made it a point to share with you one of the mantras my brother reminds me of nearly every time we sit down to have dinner. That the number one rule of effective communication is the shared definition of terms. See, if you and I can't even agree on what blue is, then if I give you a warning about that blue snake that's on your six, you won't even know what I'm talking about because you and I don't even agree what the color blue is. We have to learn how to parse this. Like this is the chaos that drives our world. We lack a shared definition of terms. And we experience it in nearly every area of interaction with other human beings. And regrettably, the Christian church is no exception. While we could spend the rest of 2022 on that point alone, I'm going to leave that kind of deep dive for Pastor Dex and G4 and shock you with another fact that's relevant to our examination of the text today. You ready? The Bible wasn't written in English. Nah, and as much as Teresa and Victor like to tell me about how it sounds so much better when they do the reading in Spanish, and I got no reason to doubt them, it wasn't written in Spanish either, y'all. 
In fact, and I know some of you theologians are already on this for me, so let me catch up. The Bible wasn't written in any of the modern languages which human beings speak today, and that includes Hebrew, Greek, and Syriac, which is the modern form of Aramaic. None of the languages that we speak today are the ones that the Bible was written in, that the Bible was experienced in. And candidly, that leaves us with a, various con a very continuous dilemma as we search the scriptures for our modern lives, because not only do we have to contend with ensuring we have basic understandings of the context of the scripture in which it was breathed into and the culture that experienced it, but we must also recognize and account for the context and the culture of the translators for our preferred versions of the Bible. Again, shout out to G4, because that's where we break those kind of things down. But here's the point I'm going to make as we get back into the garden. That over the centuries since the infinite became an infant, the telephone game has wrecked our collective Christianity. But rather than allowing that to unravel our belief in the creator's existence or to question our redemption through the finished work of his Christ, we must continually pursue the message giver at all costs. Because only he can truly unravel our individual and shared humanity so that his word can speak clearly to us today. Only he. And as we consider the impact of that dilemma on our modern context and cultures, please recognize that our mama dealt with it way back in the garden, y'all. So this ain't new to human beings. See, the serpent attacks the creator's character for show and then takes a shot at her human identity right afterwards. But notice she started from a place that was curious because check her response to the serpent's question. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And that seems okay, right? Except there's a problem here because that ain't exactly what the creator said. And for that, we got to flip over to Genesis 2. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, but the and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, that flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. See, there's several takeaways from this passage that are key to our understanding today. And what leapt off the page at me, apart from, you know, needing to find some of that good gold of Havilah for my upcoming anniversary, is how Moses is given this explicit directions and sort of a tour 
of where Eden was at. While some use these details to discredit the, the veracity of the scriptures and others to justify it, and still others are in search of Eden itself, I just marvel at the craftsmanship of our creator when I read it. Because he literally could have put that garden anywhere on the planet and it would have still been paradise. More than that, he could have put human beings anywhere on the planet and we would have loved it. But he was so deliberate about where he wanted his children to start out that even untold years later, he's given the tour of that to Moses and subsequently to us these generations later. But I believe that first tour he gave to our parents. And this points us back to the general command from Genesis 1. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, this elaborate description of Eden and its environs reveals a portion of the character of God. His attention to detail, his willingness to share the very best with his children, and his perpetual desire to help us accomplish all that we've been created, all that he created us to become. Now, while I won't get into the military and economic advantages of establishing a stronghold on waterways, let me assure you of one thing, and I'm confessing my bias as a sailor. <laughs> I see the creator has giving, as giving to humanity from that point in Eden, both the strategic vantage point and the very plan to execute the mission of establishing human dominion over the entire creation. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote <coughs> to the Philippians, for it is God who is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. See, he's never leaving you without a portion of himself to accomplish the mission that he's given you. He's not going to put you out there and be like, yo, figure it out. He's going to put you out there and he's going to give you the hints and the clues that you need to accomplish everything that you have. And those things that kind of mark off in your mind, they catch your attention when no one else sees it. That's your creator talking to you about your design. That unique part of you that came straight from him and was breathed into you very specifically and very differently from the, each person sitting in this room. And there's nothing wrong with it. Don't let anyone tell you that there's a problem with it because your design is good because he is good. And because when it was done, he looked across all of creation, not just at the sixth day, but our God who transcends the very creation of time that he created, looked across all of creation to January 2nd, 2022, in this little spot in Gary, Indiana. And he said, fam, they good. You're good. But that's not today's point. <laughs> as much as I'm feeling it, I want you to see this game of telephone that got played way back. Because check out what the creator says in verse 17. You may surely, Genesis 2 verse 17, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But check out what our mama says to the serpent. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Do you see the disconnect? We have the original command of God. 
we have Eve's response. And the text is very clear about what's going on, right? Because in our collective understandings about life before the fall, it is often inferred that everything was perfect. And while we judge the aftermath of our betrayal as the source of all human brokenness, and I'm not going to contend that point today. (laughs) Clearly, the word himself is hinting at something in these two verses that we need to be aware of. Text clearly shows us the creator's command. And then it clearly shows us Eve's response about that command. But what the text doesn't give us is how Eve came to that response from the original command, that interpretation, dare I say that translation of God's word. See, those are the keys that we have to keep in mind as we press deeper into this text. Because if we as external observers have these questions that are left unanswered by it, can you imagine what must have been going on with Eve when she's dealing with this? So once again, as we press on, let's do so with this shared definition of the terms at hand. While there are questions about the creator's command as our mama expressed it, we'll call it the Eden game of telephone. There is no question that she completely understood death would follow the violation of that command. Genesis 3, 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also, gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, as we parse these verses, there's a, three things that we should keep in mind. Much to my nerdy designs, continual delight, Genesis 1 tells us that the astronomical objects were given for times and for seasons. But you will notice something in these chapters. Apart from the original seven days and something that's coming a little bit later, (laughs) Moses gives us no sense of time's passage throughout this text. And this leads to the second point, which is what we understand from our own human nature as we parse these things, right? That individual human behavior patterns, considering those, it is quite unlikely that they ate the fruit immediately after this first conversation with with the serpent. So even though it's sequenced this way in the Bible, consider your own humanity in this moment. Insert yourself into the garden and consider what it must have been like. But I know how y'all are. So I brought some of the text to demonstrate what I mean. This is what the creator had James pen. Let no one say he is tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person, each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived give birth to gives birth to sin, and when it's fully grown, death. And this brings us to the third and most likely most significant point to remember as we consider our cultural context and we continue on. Despite our pop's claim to the otherwise, this ain't all our mama's fault. (laughs) 
And despite her claim, this ain't all the serpent's fault either. Yeah, the serpent kicked it off, but the text clearly states that our parents both together did their own research into the nature of the tree. Verse 6 says it, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that it was good for food. They discovered these three things about the nature of the tree long before they ate it. And the very nature of their determinations revealed to us that they had some questions about the nature of the tree of knowledge, at the very least. Those answers strike me with the question, does this tree have any potential to add value to my life? Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Take a look at what's happening here, fam. They eat the fruit, their eyes are open, and shame invades our world. Death enters right on the scene as they... they kill trees, to start sewing together fig leaves to cover and combat shame. Then they recognize the creator is present and fear invades humanity. And once more, they operate in the tree of knowledge to hide themselves amongst the trees. <laughs> but more importantly, here's the very first thing we hear from the creator after all of our betrayal. Where are you? See, it doesn't matter where you go in life. David penned it so masterfully when he talked about, he said, I, I could go to heaven. He said, I could descend to hell. I could go to the farthest reaches of the planet. And this is a king who's speaking this, right? So if anyone could find a place to hide, but he goes, where could I go to get away from your presence? See, in the midst of my shame, when fear is overtaking me, God is saying, where are you? So clearly, questions abound in this section of the text. Some are asked openly, like the serpents and the creators, where are you? Some are inferred to have been asked, like our parents, in the, both their response and the research into the tree. And most of them are ours that we bring from our modern-day perspective, looking at a time and a people long since past. Fam, there's only one reasonable conclusion that I can draw from this. Questions are not the problem. They're not. I know our modern Christianity has kind of created this idea that if you operate in anything less than 100% faith, speak to the mountain all the time, you know, shake the walls and this and that, that you are operating at less than 100% capacity. You may be, you may not be, but I can tell you one thing the text clearly shows. Questions are not the problem. See, when I've got a question about the nature of things, when I've got a question about the nature of my design, when I've got questions about my relationship, when I've got questions about my children, my questions to me are a problem, but they're not a problem to the one who created it all. But the text today reinforces an eternally echoing lament from our mama and daddy on the outskirts of the garden. 
that while the questions aren't the problem, where you ask those questions just might be. You see, there's no, <laughs> we still have no clue how the Eden telephone game popped off, right? We don't know how it went horribly wrong. Though I imagine if PD is in the comments, he's making some joke about an apple at the expense of our iPhone-loving brethren right now, right? <laughs> but seriously, does it really matter how we got this far off the rails? We're off the rails now. And as much as having the good gold of Havilah would be useful to me in a few weeks, that ain't what matters either. What matters is remembering the layout inside the garden itself, because the answer to all the questions, those posed by our parents originally, the ones that we're asking today, and every question throughout all of temporal existence from eternity past to eternity future when he comes back to remake it all, the answer was already there. <laughs> and out of the ground... This is Genesis 2, verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, from the creator's perspective, that second tree was an afterthought. Catch the language. Like even Moses was like, yeah, it was there. But the tree of life was there in the midst of the garden. And somehow or another, this game of telephone has brought us to this place. And so for my Sunday morning quarterbacking, I'm going to tell you that of all the mistakes our parents made, the greatest that led to the source of all the others was rather than search the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for their answers, they should have done a 180 and taken those questions to the tree of life that was in the midst of Eden. Or as the Savior himself says, I am the vine, and my Father is the gardener. You see, Jesus understood not just from a Hebrew mindset, but from all of his existence, that the very nature of human existence contains questions. And those questions were never a problem for him. And I know that it's easy to hear a message like this one, one that examines the fundamentals of our collective faith and pass it off as something for the unsaved, the unchurched, or the babes in Christ. To blithely take our connection to the tree of life for granted. Particularly in the lure of the mysterious and unknown that's ahead of us. But that is literally the trap our parents fell into. Trust me when I tell you that this message is for every single one of us. The worship team is coming back. So you may not be facing off with eating forbidden fruit in the sense of violating an explicit command of the most high God, but we cannot escape our connection to the tree of knowledge. It pervades the entirety of our existence, fam. So let me take a step back in space time and share with you one of the instances where I faced off with which tree. It was the summer of 2020, and the world was already reeling from the early stages of the pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns when we were streamed the eight-minute, 45-second snuff film of our brother George Floyd. But I couldn't process it. 
Because with millennial and Gen, Gen Z offspring running around and what was unleashed, I had to be a parent. But finally, a week or two later, fam, my moment came. I was laying across the bed on a hot June evening trying to make sense of it all. It was the first time since watching that video and talking my kids down and ensuring that they were going to be all right and that the world wasn't as bad a place as they were, that I could turn to the creator and go, this place is worse than I'm telling them that it is. <laughs> and that's when one of the littlest of the fam came in to prophesy to me. In this circumstance, the circumstance, then four-year-old Kean came through with a handful of coins and laid down next to me to show off his stash. Now, because again, parenting, I had to pull myself out of the moment that I was in and engage in the privilege of a teaching moment. As my man's counted and he turned to me and said, Dad, I have 12 monies. Through that exact same chuckle, y'all, I actually had to teach him about how he had more than 12 monies because of their different values. And so as we complete this impromptu counting lesson, he hits me with the spiritual heat that the creator intended all along. His little voice summoning from the depths of my confusion. Dad, yes, sir. Who said this, holding up his dime, was more than this, holding up his penny? Fam, I struggled under the weight of that question. Because how do you teach a little one about money at the same time deal with the eternal revelation that was going off inside of me? See, this message today is only a fraction of what I've been able to unravel from what he deposited inside me that day. I didn't realize it at the time, but just like our parents way back in paradise, I was all in on the tree of knowledge of good and evil processing that moment. And as the world looked at the United States on the brink of chaos, and I'm trying to deal with the looming existential crisis brewing within, I hear the voice of the creator wandering through the streets of Gary, Indiana in 2020. And he called to me, and rather than hide, I confessed my complete insufficiency and the need to understand what I had witnessed and to put it into words that would quiet the hearts of those who rely on me for their strength in this life. And his reply was the same to me as it was to our parents all those transits around the sun ago. Who told you that? Who told you that? See, I don't know what questions you got on this second day of 2022, but I know for certain that if you're breathing, you got them. <laughs> and if you ain't got them today, celebrate your joy for the moment because they waiting for you when you get out of here. See, what he's really saying to, to us, what he was really saying to Adam, when he said to him, who told you that you were naked? What he's really saying is this, who told you that your value is somehow directly tied to the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? 
Who told you that your genetic traits had anything to do, and this includes melanin and anatomical organs, people. Who told you that they were the defining characteristic of your existence? Who told you that your zip code, the one that you're born into, or the one that you find yourself living in now, who told you that that gets to determine the quality of the life you experience? Who told you that your ethnic and cultural heritage are the defining standards by which you will be judged and that you get to make your life choices? Who told you the degrees, the accolades, the career that you pick are the markers of success. Who told you that? Who told you that your bank account, your credit score, your net worth, <laughs> who told you that those are the determining value of your life? Of your life? Who told you that the government and NGO statistics that we so needlessly weaponize against one another are the measuring sticks? Who told you that your political party, religious organization, existential worldview or how, is how you're supposed to judge the other 7.8 billion siblings wandering this planet? Who told you that? Who told you that the group of people that you were born into or born from are the only family that you got? Who told you that the hand that you were dealt, that somehow the brokenness of the road that you've traveled to get to this moment has already determined the outcome of your life? Who told you that? Who told you that your time, talents, and treasures are not enough to impact this world? Who told you that? I could do this all day. <laughs> and before you put me to the test to see if I can, <laughs> let me be clear that there is no denying that we are connected to the tree of knowledge. Our parents locked that choice in for us. But the good news, <laughs> the great news, the absolute best news, <laughs> the best news is that you and me, fam, while we, we most definitely don't got to live off that tree no more. Because one stepped into our parents' failed test and turned it into a testimony of mercy and grace for the ages. But fam, that one wasn't done there. That one sent another one into our mess and made it a message of glorious hope, fulfilling the promise of redemption. But that one wasn't done either, because that one still sent still another one to help us through these present day trials, turning them into triumphs until the day when the one finally returns to restore all of creation to the only one. You know the one I mean, right? The one we just spent time celebrating. I'm talking about that infinite one who, be, who had been the iridescent one, yet willingly became the insignificant one, for we the irresponsible ones. He was born the infant one. He lived the immaculate one, then slain the intermediary one, redeeming we the irreparable ones. He was risen the immaculate one, restored access to the incomprehensible one, ascended the illustrious one, sent the illuminating one to we intransigent ones while assuming the role of the interceding one next to the iridescent one who desires greatly to be your intimate one. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. Truly, truly, the indescribable one.